Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would be with us in this time. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless he who speaks, for he is weak, and bless those who hear, for they are weak. Lord, again, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey. Have mercy upon us, O great God. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, um, I apologize for not getting this in, in the bulletin, but there's actually two scripture readings. So before we turn to the text that we'll consider more deeply tonight, Romans 8, um, let's first turn to Psalm 44. Okay, Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You were with your own, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Though we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations." You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, and then we are only going to read a few verses. Romans 8, starting in in verse 35, says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So one of uh, my, my favorite movies that my, my wife and I bonded over early on in our, our dating is, is Walk the Line. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but it's a, it's a biography um, of, of, of Johnny Cash. And in, in the beginning, it starts out, right, like every biography, he's a young boy, and he gets a little bit older, and he really wants to make his way in the music industry. And so he sort of forces himself in to, uh, maybe an audition isn't the right word, but um, into a recording studio in front of a manager. And him and his band play this gospel song um, that, you, that you hear throughout the movie. And they get about three chords in, maybe just a couple lines or so. And the recording studio manager just kind of cuts them off and says, nope, don't want to hear it, don't like it get out of here, it, it won't sell. And Cash's response to this manager is, you didn't let us bring it home. And the manager responds this way, bring it home. All right, let's, let, let's bring it home. If you were hit by a truck and you were laying out in the gutter and you had time to sing one song, one song people would remember before you were dirt, one song that would sum you up, you're telling me you'd sing the same tune we hear all day? Or would you sing something different, something real, something that you felt? Because that's the kind of song that truly saves people. And so this is a question I have for you that I want us all to consider this evening is, if it were up to you, what would that one song be? If you only had two minutes to live, what song would you sing? Or maybe just a different way to ask the question I'm not just talking about music here, is what's the one passage of the Bible you would read? Where, where, where would you go to to find comfort in, in your last breaths? I think here in Romans 8, we have such a passage, or we have such a song that, that we can hold on to uh, in, in our last breaths. Derek Thomas, uh, he did a sermon series on, on Romans 8, and he called Romans 8 the best chapter in the Bible. And I think maybe a lot of us would agree with that. Romans 8 is, is just, it's, it's like having dessert for dinner. It's just, it's, a, it's amazing, right? But, but a deacon came up to Derek Thomas after this sermon where he said Romans 8 is the best chapter in the Bible. And he asked him, doesn't that imply that there are parts of the Bible that are better than others? And I think it's a, it's a good question. But his response was really good. He said, Mr. Deacon, if you had two minutes to live, would you rather me read to you Romans 8 or the genealogies and chronicles? What would it be, Mr. Deacon? And I think we all know the answer, right? It's, it's Romans 8. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm, Romans 8 isn't somehow super inspired and the, and the genealogies are down here. It's all inspired. It's all, it's all God's Word. But here in Romans 8, we have a beautiful and succinct summation of the gospel, of God's promises to us. And it would do well for us to, to hold, hold these tightly. This, this passage, Romans 8, 35 to 39, the whole chapter, it, it's something that we, that we should cherish, one that should never be far from our hearts. 
Here, Paul is, is bringing, in our text today, he's bringing to conclusion this great chapter where he's reassured us over and over again of great gospel truths. Like in verse 1, where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. These few verses here in in Romans 8, I I think that this is a song that that brings it home. And that that, that brings us to, to our first point for the evening. And our first point is that the saints cannot be separated and we get this from, from verse 35, where Paul simply asks in the first half, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul has already answered this question. He's already reiterated over and over again. If we look up, if we look back into verse 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And what is the answer? No one. No one can be against us. And in verse 33, he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer, of course, is no one. And in verse 34, who is the one to condemn? No one. No one can condemn us. Charles Hodge says about this passage here in Romans 8 that Paul is on the very summit of the Mount of Confidence from where he looks down on his enemies as powerless, and he looks forward and upward with full assurance of a final and abundant triumph. No one can accuse, no one can condemn, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. This last assurance gives permanency to the value of the other two. And so here specifically in verse 35, Paul is asking the question, who can separate us? Is there uh, any any uh, bad guy from a spaghetti western? Is there any video game boss that's going to come out and get us and separate us from, from the love of Christ? And the answer is no. He, he goes on in the second part of verse 35, he says, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Here, Paul is heightening the question that he first asked in, in verse 35. He, he adds these external circumstances to the who question. So we know no one can do it, but what about, what about these things? But the answer is still no. Paul is asking us that if, if anything bad happens to me, or, or we're asking, if anything bad happens to me in this life, does that mean that Christ does not love me? The answer is no. Just because bad things just happen to us, just because we suffer, that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. But I, I do want to be clear about something in, in this passage. Um, Paul here is not a motivational speaker, right? Paul didn't write Romans 8 for you to rip off one verse and, and put it on your coffee cup to make, you, to make you feel better in the morning. Paul is giving us this list, these particular things, not as a motivational speaker saying, look at all the things that you can conquer, Paul gives us this list because he's a veteran of war. He's not a prosperity gospel teacher telling us we will never face tribulation if we have faith. He is not a preacher of self-empowerment. He's not telling us that we are David and we need to go slay our Goliath. Paul is a theologian of, of the cross. Paul knows what it is to suffer. And this list here in verse 35 
is not a random list. If you know Paul well, he actually references almost all of these things throughout the rest of his letters. One of the places he, he mentions such sufferings as we see in verse 35 is in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Paul has really suffered with, with these things that he gives us in, in verse 35. And, and Paul can testify that Christ, that Christ loves us despite these tribulations. These tribulations do not mean God doesn't love us. But again, Paul is not just showing off here. He's not, he, he's not showing his battle scars to his buddies. He's not bragging for bragging's sake. But Paul gives us this list because he struggled with this list, and he knows that we struggle with the, with the things in this list as well. I think this list here, yeah, obviously we just read, Paul struggled with all these things, but it's generic enough that I think it applies to, to all of us or, or to Christians in all times. And indeed, all of us here today, Christians throughout time, we all in various times and in various ways experience tribulation, distress, persecution, or any type of suffering, but this will not separate us from the, the love of Christ. I, this is a good truth, a, a beautiful truth, that no matter our suffering, it will not separate us from the love of Christ. But I, but I know, and I think you guys know this as well, you have felt this tension in your life that this is a truth that's easy to confess and hard, hard to believe. And, and what I mean by that is, theologically, we know that God is not mad at us or He hasn't separated Himself from us, but when we go through suffering, we have this knee-jerk reaction to think that God doesn't love us. We, we often go through things in this list or any type of suffering, and we say, this must be a token of God's wrath. I'm suffering in this way. I'm still single. I'm underemployed, unemployed. I'm, I'm facing this disease, whatever it may be. We tend to think that we are suffering because, because God is, is mad at us. And, and so this, this is an error that we need to avoid. Our suffering in this world are not tokens of God's wrath. The other, the other trap that we need to avoid is the prosperity gospel trap. And I know all of you here are, are good Dutch Reformed men and women, and you, you would never fall into the prosperity gospel trap, that the, the name it and claim it, right, if I just believe I'll, I'll have a lot of money. But, but I think maybe tacitly or subtly is probably a better word. We, we do ask ourselves, God, why am I struggling with this? I believe I'm not supposed to struggle with this. I'm a good servant 
Why am I struggling with tribulation or, or distress? E- even us, even us as good Reformed folk who know our theology well, who have read Romans 8 quite a bit, we, we're often tempted to, to say that when we experience trials, we're tempted to say that God is, is punishing us. But Paul wants to make it clear to us that while we may be tempted to believe that our suffering is a token of God's wrath, he, want, he wants to totally kick that out of our heads, right? The answer of, will these things separate us? Will your unemployment, will your disease, will your wayward covenant children separate you from the love of God? Or is it a token of God's wrath? The answer is no. God is not, God is not punishing us. But suffering is, is a part of, of this life. Though, though nothing can separate, no trial, temptation, no power can separate us from the love of God, suffering is still a part of this life. It's still something that we have to, to deal with. And that brings us to our second point, that the saints will suffer. And this is why he writes in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed, killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. When I, when I first read verse 36, it's, it's jarring to me a, a little bit. On, on first glance, it, it sort of throws me for a loop. As we talked about, this beautiful, magnificent chapter of Romans 8, God's assurance over and over again, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, where we've been talking about assurance all the way through this chapter, Paul brings our assurance of salvation to slaughter. It's, it's jarring. Our, our joy from reading Romans 8 early on turns to suffering for a second here. The, the summit of Mount Confidence that Charles Hodge talked about now looks like the valley of despair, right? We, we are being killed all the day long. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. Paul here is quoting Psalm 44, which we read earlier, a, a lament psalm. And Psalm 44 is looking back on the glory days, the, the good old days of Israel when the Lord protected and prospered Israel, when the Lord protected Israel from, from her enemies. And now the psalmist is seeing that God is no longer doing that in the same way he used to. And, and he's wondering, why aren't you doing this, God? Why aren't you protecting us like you used to? Why am I suffering in this way? And the, the psalmist has this very emotionally raw or, or charged response to God that, I mean, I almost feel a little uncomfortable reading, right? I mean, he, he says in verse 23 of Psalm 44, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. This, this is shocking. This is, this is hard to read. In Psalm 44, we're, we're looking for a resolution. Okay, everything's bad, but. Or, or, or we're looking for a hero, but, but we never find one. If any of you guys have, have seen Lord of the Rings or, or read the books, you, you know well that when the good guys are in the thick of it, when their back is up against the wall and there's absolutely no way out, how do they get out? These giant eagles come down and grab the good guys and take them to safety. That's kind of what we're looking for in Psalm 44. Everything's bad. 
We're completely surrounded by the enemy. Somebody come and save us. And Psalm 44 leaves us without a resolution. This, this psalm is exploring this, this back and forth that we experience in life, and that's been experienced in, in Christian history. Sometimes there's periods of blessing, and sometimes there's periods of barrenness. There's advance, there, there's, there's retreat. And sometimes, as Psalm 44 points out, that's not due to our change of loyalty. And so really, this psalm just leaves us baffled. God, I haven't changed. It seems like you have changed. It is kind of the, the point of, of the psalmist. Theologically, we know that's true. God doesn't change, but that's the experience of the psalmist. It seems like God is sleeping. And so if we go back to that original question of, of what song would you sing in your dying breaths, Psalm 44 may not make the top or the top five or, or the top ten. It's, it's a weighty psalm. It's, it, it's heavy. There's no resolution for the suffering. There's seemingly no resolution for the, suffer, uh, for the suffering of the saints. But Paul uses this verse in Psalm 44. He uses it here in Romans 8 to show us that just like the saints in the Old Testament suffer, the saints in the New Testament are going to suffer as well. Some, some of us, some Christians throughout church history were, were tempted to think that the love of Christ is so strong, there will be no tribulation. And Paul corrects this clearly, decisively. Though we can be sure of the love of Christ, we can also be sure of suffering in this life. Lots of examples, lots of places we can go, lots of stories here in this room. Right? But we could think first of the persecuted church. Likely today... There were Christians, there were pastors, there were women and children who, who were like sheep led to the slaughter, who, who lost their lives. And many more uh, throughout the world have, have lost employment, they've lost their homes, they've lost social standing for the sake of Christ. And we all hear, as I said, we all suffer in, in our own way. Some, some of us suffer with Addictions that have lasted years, pet sins that, that won't go away. We struggle with perpetual singleness, death in our families, unemployment, disease, divorce, the list goes on. Suffering is a part of this life. And many of us here today, we may feel like we are sheep being led to the slaughter. And what does God's Word have to say about that? Paul, again here, is quoting Psalm 44 to heighten the question of who will separate us from the love of God. Psalm 44 heightens the question and asks, has God hidden his face? Has God forgotten our affliction? Have we been separated from the love of Christ? Because things aren't so good right now. And the answer to this question is found in verse 37 and 38. And, And that brings us to our third point, that the saints conquer. So verse 37 again says, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul, here in verse 37, answers the question of Psalm 44 plainly, plainly, where the psalmist sort of left us without resolution. Christ has not left us in our affliction, Paul wants to make clear, nor does affliction mean we are separated from Christ, but we are more than conquerors. I I like the way that the ESV says this. We are more than conquerors. The NASB says, but in all these things, we 
overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And this isn't to say one translation is better than the best, but I just want us to get this idea of conquering here is not a narrow, is not a narrow victory. It, it's an overwhelming, it's a magnificent defeat. The, the word here for conquer has the idea of utter denomination. It, it's not squeezing out a narrow victory, um, but it's demolishing the competition. So this is, not two, this is not a picture of two people running in a race and one person just barely winning by, by nose length. Again, utter denomination. As fast as Seabiscuit may have been, not as fast as a Lamborghini, right? There, there's not even a, a comparison but between those two things. And this is the picture of victory we have through Christ, utter domination, utter victory. But how then is this victory uh, accomplished? It sounds great to be more than conquerors. It sounds great to utterly conquer, but, but how do we do it? Again, I want to make clear that this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not name it and claim it, but this is victory through Him who loved us. This is a victory through the cross. And Calvin says of this passage that this one sentence sufficiently proves that the apostle speaks not here of the fervency of the love that we have toward God, but of the paternal kindness of God and of Christ towards us, the assurance of which, being thoroughly fixed in our hearts, will always draw us from the gates of hell into the light of life, and will sufficiently avail for our support. What Calvin is getting at here is that it is not our love for God that makes us overwhelmingly conquer our suffering, but it's Christ's love for us. And I want to be a, a, little, a little redundant on this. I, I want to double down on this because I think, I think it's, a, it's a big point that, that I, I don't want us to miss. Our confidence of our salvation, of our conquering and our suffering, our, our confidence does not rest in the quality of our faith, but in the quality of our Savior who loved us. And so our tithes, though they may be big, our scripture memorization, though it may be vast, our spiritual disciplines, though they may be longstanding, Though we may be good, moral, and upright people, these are not the foundation of our salvation. These are not the foundation of our victory and suffering. We do not conquer because we are such great saints, but we conquer because we have such a great Savior. And this great Savior invites you, invites me, invites all of us to trust in Him for our righteousness and for our salvation. God wants to remind us in this passage that if we are suffering, or even if we're prospering, it is only through the love of God that we can be saved. Our Lord Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our Lord does not say, work harder. Our Lord does not merely say, vote correctly. Our Lord does not say, hate the right things, and then you will be saved. No, he says, come to me, trust me. Again, it is not the quality of your faith. It's not the quality of my faith that will deliver me, but it's the quality of the great Savior for all those who believe. And so Paul, he, he goes on here. 
And he continues his argument of our conquering in Christ's love, not on the basis of our strength, but on the basis of Christ's strength. He says in verse 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul here, still answering the same question, will these things separate us? He's just being even more exhaustive, even more specific. Well, in in the previous verses, Paul asked, who could separate us from the love of God? And even specified some external things, right? If the church is persecuted, if I'm hungry, uh, whatever it may be, will those things separate me from the love of God? Here in 38 and 39, Paul's being even more specific with his list. He goes all in and he says not even cosmic powers can separate us from the love of Christ. And so the question is that if none of these can separate us from Christ's love, what do we have to fear? We don't have to fear death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. But again, I don't want to gloss over this list. I I, I don't want to be trite. Paul is not a coach telling us that these are mere obstacles that we can get over. This is not just another football team. This is not just another track runner that we can beat. And Paul's giving us a little pep talk saying we can do it. Paul here in verse 38 and 39 is talking about the most serious and powerful things in the world. And he said they cannot separate us. Not death, not life, not angels, not rulers, not any current affair, nor any future event. No disease, no war, no president or natural disaster can separate us from the love of Christ. And, and we could work through this list in and, and, and more detail. Some of you would love that. Some of you would hate me for that. Um, we, we could work through and in more detail do some word, word studies here. And there may be some good benefit to that. But the point here isn't, you know, how I, I should know off the top of my head, if there's eight things listed here, Paul's not just saying these mere eight things you're safe from. The point here is that, is that these things will not separate us and, and nothing else, neither death nor life. He's talking about everything, not, not just a few specific things, but, but nothing at all in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. There is no power in the universe stronger than our, Savior love, our Savior's love for His people. And friends, I hope that you know this love and that you know this Savior. All humans suffer in, in various ways, but it is only through the love of our Savior that we can become conquerors and can know peace both in this life and in the one to come. And this is why earlier in, in, in verse 28, Paul can say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Since nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, all things work together for our good. And, and so I, I want to conclude, I, I want to bring us to an end back where, where I started and, and ask you again, 
what song will you sing in, in your life? If you were hit by a truck and you were laying out in the gutter and you had time to sing one song, what would it be? If um, you, you grew up in the metropolis of Bakersfield, like, like I did, and uh, experienced the great culture of, of country music, you might sing a song like, if you're going through hell, keep on going. If you're a little younger and hipper than I, you might sing a song like, I started from the bottom, and, and now I'm here. You might sing a song like, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Stronger. You might sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, or Eye of the Tiger, or Don't Stop Believing." But our song as, as Christians ought to be Christ and Him crucified, now ruling and reigning over all. And so lastly, I, I would like to finish, though I, I'm not... I'm not Dutch Reformed. I, I do appreciate your three forms of unity quite a bit. And is there anything better in them than the, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism? When it asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we should think about that for just one more second. What is our only comfort in life and in death? Is it your strength? Is it your good deeds? Is it your bank account? Is it that we got the right president in? Is it that we're going to get the right one in in the next one? Is it your kids or your job? No, these aren't our comfort. Our ultimate comfort in, in life and death, our ultimate comfort is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the, the good truths of your word. Lord, help us to remember these truths, Lord. May we be catechized by, by, by your word, by the truths of Scripture. May the songs that we sing be filled with praise for you, O Lord. May, may we look to your word when, when we are suffering. And Lord, likely there are many here that, that, are, that are suffering in various ways, and we pray that you would comfort the, the afflicted. But Lord, there are also many here who are comforted, comforted and have not been afflicted by, by their sin. And if there be any here, we pray that you would open their eyes to see the, the goodness, the glory, the majesty of our great Savior, that they would see salvation is not about us working hard, but about looking to the quality of our great Savior. Lord, be with us the rest of this day. Help us to remember the things that we've heard both this morning and this evening. Help us to remember them and heed them faithfully. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.